And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, world! Hi! I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. And we are Rebel Girls Book Club, and we're doing a video episode along with this podcast. <laughs> so, I have to remember that. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna put we're gonna put a link in our show notes uh, so you can see us if you're interested. It will probably be a little bit less edited than our regular podcast episodes, but you can go down to YouTube and see our lovely faces because we are quite lovely. Harmony's got like a whole Christmas tree situation happening in the background, which is very festive. Yes, I moved. Looking like the fucking Grinch. (laughs) (laughs) I moved my Christmas tree to be more festive. I also like, I'm wearing my witch's hat and it's red and I've adorned it with um, fun Christmas barrettes. So you all can enjoy that. (laughs) It's true. She's, she's ready to go. I haven't had a chance to decorate for Christmas yet. I'm sorry. DD isn't home. I didn't want to do it without him, but like now we're getting close, you know? Yeah. I decorated before I left for Thanksgiving and Matt was not happy about it. He was, <laughs> <laughs> but then like afterwards, after it happened, like a couple of days later, he looked at me and he stared at our little Christmas tree and he went, I'm so happy with the home that we've made. <laughs> Yeah, it was really cute. Uh, okay, so today we are talking about, and I'm going Half to butcher spent the, the night. Can you say it again? Half Spent Was the Night by Amy yes. McKay. Yes, Half Spent Was the Night by Amy McKay. And Maggie and I are sharing a copy, so I am going textless right now. I saw Maggie kind of during our Thanksgiving break, and I gave her the book. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Do you want to show people, Matt? I will. I will show them. Yeah, again. <laughs> Look at the book. It's so pretty. It's very pretty. And then, (laughs) do you want to show them? Are there illustrations? I don't think so. Let me check. Let me check. There are recipes that she can show you, though. There are (laughs) recipes, and I will show you. No, there's no illustrations. Okay. But there are recipes. We will share the recipes. Harmony has thoughts about the recipes. Oh, yeah, I do have thoughts about the recipes. I want to make them. I haven't gotten a chance to make them, but I would like to, and it would be. Yeah, it's because I've been, I've held the book hostage. (laughs) So the real reason I didn't end up getting to send it back to you was because we didn't know when we were going to record. And I was like, well, the worst thing that could happen is if we have to record and the book is still like in transit and no one has to <laughs> You're perfectly fine. Don't worry. I wasn't expecting you to send it back to me anytime soon because I am horrible at mail. And so, yeah, I wasn't expecting you to be better. Yeah, they're great though. The recipes are great. What were your thoughts on this book, Maggie? I think ultimately similarly to the first book, which was that it was really enjoyable. It was really sweet. It just kind of kept me wanting more the whole time. And I think with this one, I felt more settled with that because it is, excuse me, you know, just like a little Christmas story that seems to be kind of shifting, hopefully, between the the first book and please God, let there be a sequel. 
please. Um, <laughs> please. But yeah, just like good, sweet, wholesome, clean fun. As per as per the first book, I would say. Even but I did also enjoy the fact that this one has even kind of less romantic stuff happening and it really did just focus on the friendship between Beatrice and Eleanor and Adelaide, which I thought was really nice. Really? But we do kind of like we do get a romantic love interest for Beatrice in this one. So I know. <laughs> and it wasn't like it wasn't like Brody wasn't there and neither was um Eleanor's lady love whose name I can't remember. Yeah. Um, it's not Lucy. It's uh the other one. <laughs> I wonder if I have it in the notes. But yeah, I agree. She only mentions her once. There so let's give a brief summary. So okay. this book takes place at Beatrice's no, it doesn't take place at Beatrice's aunt's house. Wow. This place takes book between uh <laughs> place takes book between <laughs> This book takes place <laughs> at Brody's uh house that the witches got to move into. Yeah. Great. <laughs> That's all you need to know. It takes place essentially right, like, leading up to Christmas and then kind of, like, between Christmas and New Year's. And Beatrice is having some, like, real weird dreams about the stranger. So the book opens with her kind of doing some divination stuff, trying to figure out what this, what these dreams and who the stranger is and, like, what it all means. Um, and as essentially as they're doing this three knocks happen on the door and they get each get invited to this very mysterious oh my god my dog almost just threw herself off the couch <laughs> uh this very mysterious ball that's happening so it's all about the lead up to the ball and what happens at the ball where essentially Malthus ends up attacking and they called the hunt it was implied that the the ball was being hosted by the goddess diana correct like goddess diana yeah like the goddess of diana is the goddess of the hunt oh yes 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 diana i thought you said diana yes no no no. the goddess <laughs> the goddess diana and so malthus like tries to strike to bring down beatrice himself he fails they call the hunt and we finally learn a little bit more about who purdue is and that's kind of generally speaking the major plot points that happen in this story malthus attacks Beatrice has this weird love interest happening. They finally call the hunt. Diana, the hunt. Yeah, so the <laughs> there is a goddess. And I think this also relates back to the first book. Um, there's this whole story about the princess and the raven. And it's implied that the raven is Purdue. And I think that maybe the witch might also be Diana? I don't know. What do you think? I'm yeah, sure. I don't know. I don't know either. It was very... Shall we Shall we spoil the producing now? Because it becomes kind of central to the story. So it turns out that the stranger that Beatrice keeps, keeps dreaming about is Purdue and his human form. And, you, you know, we get hints of this in the first book, right? Like, we discover by the end that Purdue is not what he seems. And it's heavily implied that he was once human, but they don't really confirm it until this book. 
Um, and so he's like kind of actually building up a love interest situation with Beatrice. He is able to show up in person at this ball and he sacrifices himself essentially when Malthus attacks in his human form to save Beatrice. And then magically at the end of it, he's back in his raven form. He can't really speak to Beatrice anymore. And she's unsure how he's arrived back unscathed. Um, so it leaves a lot of questions, really, because the like hint of romance was cute, but also understandably not very well developed because it ends up ultimately happening all in one kind of swift moment. And we don't get any answers as to who Purdue actually is or why he's trapped in this way or even why he's able to become human for one night because it focuses so heavily on the romance. I don't have my copy of The Witches of New York because I've lent it to a friend but in that little story from The Witches of New York I think it does say that somebody is transformed into a raven. It does but they don't give you a lot of information about who that person was. I, it really just like hints at the rest of the hints, I think, in The Witches of New York that the Purdue is that person. And really all this, the short story gives us is confirmation that like, yes, that's true. Purdue once was a human and apparently now has a thing for Beatrice. Yeah, which I found we had very different opinions about, I think. But I, I think we should get into that a little bit later. But as long as the summary is done, what do you do think about the form of the story? Because it is really only like 80 pages, maybe at most. It's an itty bitty little book. It's a novella. And it is, it is a lot different from The Witches of New York. I think that like reading it, I thought that this book was supposed to be read out loud, maybe like in a Christmas setting. And it was less of, like, a story to just, like, it's, it's a story that you're supposed to read in one setting, and it was less of a novel, like, story. And I felt as though, I don't know, I felt as though it was, like, imbued with some sort of Christmas magic, as we see with the recipes and stuff. What did you think about the form? Do you have any thoughts about that? No, I think that that was exactly what it intended to be, was just, like, a little novella based around this Christmas story, like, all of those things I said about not getting answers, I wasn't expecting to get them from this. You know, yeah. it's called a, win a witch's yuletide. I think you know going into it that, like, it is supposed to have that Christmas magic and it is supposed to just kind of be a fun time to a certain extent. Like, it does expand on the world a little bit. We do get some answers. We do get a little bit more knowledge about the general world building. But I, I agree with you about the form. Like, it's very... Yeah, I just, I agree. I think you, I think you nailed it on the head. I just think it's interesting because I don't see anything else, at least contemporarily, written that way. Like, we have longer short stories that I've been exposed to, or even like A Christmas Carol, although I don't know that that's really supposed to be read out loud. Like, that is a, a little mini novel, but we don't, I don't see any works written today that are meant to be like a shared experience oh it's interesting that you say that because i was actually thinking that that's like on the rise again a little bit i've i've read a couple of novels recently where it feels like they're supposed to be that shared experience i think because they were directly taught uh tying back to like folklore and spoken word um like oh my gosh what is her name Sorry, Googling. Yes, 
Diana Setterfield, I think, is really reharnessing that where it's like a shared experience where you feel the entire time like it's supposed to be read out loud. Her book is The Thirteenth Tale. That's probably her most famous one. And she her most recent release is Once Upon a River. Um, they both they both really have that quality. Um, so I think that I think that you're right in that it's unique, but I do think also in what I've been reading recently that having that aspect of like making you feel like it should be shared out loud or like based off that kind of folklore tradition is I think seeping back into mainstream culture and I think in many ways with like Native American authors never really left. Okay interesting that's awesome I yeah I just thought it was cool because it does kind of tie back into the witchcraft theme and it it is just so timely for Christmas, and I mean, McKay really does, like, try to do more to, I mean, with the recipes, even, like, she does more to, like, really seep it in some sort of tradition and old-timey yeah. real-worldness. I loved the recipe aspect of it, and I loved the fact that it became more of a shared experience. Um, in that sense, I think that something I really enjoy in books is when authors are able to do that like engage it becomes more of a multi-sensory experience right even if you yeah. don't necessarily make the recipe the way that we read things like recipes versus the way we read things like novels are inherently different because they have different results and they activate different parts of your brain so like for me at least when I'm reading a recipe I'm thinking about all those ingredients and thinking about what the final product is going to be like and even if I don't necessarily ever actually taste that thing I think about it and I experience it in a much different way than I do if I just read that a character in a book has eaten something and I really appreciated that aspect to it it brought a whole different level of immersion into the reading experience yeah okay I agree all right so that's everything I wanted to say about the form is there anything else that you want to add no, I just think it's important to emphasize that, like, this isn't a, a true sequel. So the form, I think, also plays into that. I don't know if, if this was supposed to be, like, a true sequel, if this was a longer form novel, if that form would have worked. This form, while reminiscent of The Witches of New York, tonally and in the writing style, of course, not have worked for me in a longer form novel, especially as, like, a true sequel, so to speak. Yeah, that was, that was it. That was my point. <laughs> okay. All right. And then do you want to get into the plot a little bit? Sure. And what our thoughts were? So we're, we're doing less feminist analysis on this book because it is so short, as you can tell. And I wrote my notes while on a plane to go see Maggie. <laughs> the first, one of the first things I have is about the stranger. And I'm, I'm asking if it's going to be a Hans thing, which I'm sure Maggie doesn't understand the reference because she refuses to watch my favorite movie ever, Frozen. Oh, my God, <laughs> oh, by the way, you guys, quick tangent, Frozen 2. Everyone should see it. It is beautiful. Maggie is missing out. I want you to all publicly shame her on social media for not watching Frozen. If you love Frozen 2, send us a shout out. <laughs> it made me, I cried. I cried so many times, Maggie. It was beautiful. It was really, really good. Anyway, so my initial thoughts about The Stranger was like, oh, this is definitely Malthus. And I thought that really almost to the end. 
um, like until it's revealed. I thought that it was Malthus like planting himself because we meet, we hear about the stranger and then like right after we kind of see him and he's trying to lure Beatrice and her evil magic or her powerful magic to make it evil. Yeah, I, that was my initial reaction too, was that it was probably Malthus. But honestly, I disregarded that theory pretty quickly because I thought it was just too obvious. So for me, that actually ended up working out because like I was surprised when we found out that the stranger was Purdue mm-hmm. and in like a pleasant way because since I refused to believe that the stranger was Malthus essentially, like it crossed my mind. I had like the opposite experience, I think, where I refused to think that it was Purdue. Although in my notes, I have at one point before the reveal, let's see, is Beatrice going to bone Purdue? Because, like, why? (laughs) (laughs) So I think I was suspecting it, that it could be Purdue, maybe a little bit earlier on, but, like, was hoping it was Malthus because I was very against it being Purdue. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, because mine was totally the opposite of that. I just think it's weird because he's like her pet. And also, he has to be like millions of years old. Like, he's super fucking old. I think... So, I think that part of my experience with this just comes from the fact that, like, this is kind of a common trope in fantasy in general, and it's just that one that, like, I just, I'm, I think I'm, I'm so used to seeing that, like, I, my shock value at all of those variables is pretty minimal, to be perfectly honest. The pet thing is definitely weird and interesting. But then at the same time, I think it is kind of debatable on whether Purdue, on, like, what the difference, I guess, I guess between a pet and a familiar is in that kind of situation. Yeah. Because they don't necessarily treat Purdue like a pet, right? Like, they don't coddle him. They don't, they feed him. They legitimately ask him for advice. Like, they're aware of the fact that he's sentient, you know? So I think that there is a little bit of nuance there that could make it slightly less weird. But really, I just think that, like, my whole lack of reaction to this is, it just comes down to the fact that it's a pretty common fantasy trope and, like, So it just didn't surprise me on that front. Not to say that it makes it right or not weird, but, like, I think that doesn't have any visceral reaction to it, you know? Yeah, I guess it's just, like, it feels weird because it's, like, almost, like, bestiality to me. Because, like, although I do love my pets and I pet them a lot, like, they do love Purdue in in a similar way, I feel like, and and treat him in a way that, like, I've treated my pets. Um, And maybe my pets were a little bit familiar-esque. Like, maybe that's just me like I've, I've always seen them as like full autonomous beings who are smart and like savvy but it's it just I think it, it's almost incestuous that's what it is it like to me because like he's a part of their family right and she like does pet him and like he's there in her room all the time so it's just it's just creepy it's just it just strikes me as so creepy <laughs> I think the key to this is like actually getting a sequel and understanding what Purdue actually is and knows and doesn't know and all of that stuff because I think the key to it is like is this actually this poor human mind locked inside an animal body or is it like a weird bestiality thing because he's just like when he's the raven he's just the raven if that makes sense like 
I think that that's the line. And I think that if it's the first one, it could still be problematic because you're right. He is in her room all the time and all of that. But I think it's, there's a distinction between both scenarios and we don't know what that distinction is yet because we just know nothing about what the fuck happened to Purdue. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I think even if he does have a human mind, it just feels weird to me because then it feels like weird and predatory and he's like creeping on her. And maybe it's just because I have not seen this like outside of Twilight. So I don't, I don't it's know. It's common in a lot of stories that have to do with like fae and fairies. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I need to read more fantasy, I guess. I'm not saying it's okay. I, I'm not trying to say that I don't think that you're right. I was only trying to say that I think that my lack of finding it strange is just because it's a trope I've been familiar with. I also wanted to talk about, so Miss Strutz. Miss Strutz is like a secret witch. And this kind of plays back into our discussion with Witches of New York 1, where like everybody's a witch, I feel. Because it kind of comes out of nowhere, and it's not really talked about ever again, the fact that she performs real witchcraft. Yeah. Powerful witchcraft. Did you did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it wrote, so it was also, if I remember correctly, something that was, like, related to her, like, ancestors and descent, and I think it was her Eastern European descent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of didn't really know how I felt about it, honestly, because... On the one hand, I think that there there are, I don't know how to explain this. So I come from Eastern European descent. Um, my, I have family who hailed from Romania and Albania. I knew them, you know, like they, this is a culture that I feel not like totally tied to, don't get me wrong, but like I, I feel kind of familiar with. And there are, are something that my great-grandmother occasionally talked about from what I remember is I don't know how to explain what do I what do I want to explain essentially what I'm saying is that I think that there is an idea that everybody's a witch here but I also think that the way Amy McCabe portrayed it is kind of problematic because I think that there are a lot of ties to Eastern European people related to witchcraft that throughout history has been really negative um and like have also tended to die uh eastern european people in with romani people which like those are two separate things and like the way the romani people are treated is like really problematic um so i think that i didn't know what to make of the mrs Strutcraft thing because from what i let me i'm gonna go to the text for a second if that's okay okay yeah while you're doing that one thing we didn't consider in our original witches of new york discussion is whether or not amy mckay maybe hails from romani people or from your eastern european descent and that occurred to me afterwards and it's really like we i don't know how we could tell but i'm wondering if that would change our context about it because if people have been listening along and have gone way back to our the witches of new york episodes we do um, make it. We do have a big discussion about the word "gypsy," which I'm saying here because that's what's used in the text, and how we felt about that word because it is kind of a slur, and whether or not it was okay to use that word, especially because this book was written in modern times in the modern era, and you know, it maybe it should be known that it's a slur. But I wonder if the context changes if it's coming from somebody who has that sort of descent 
And I also think, I mean, even like me more so than Maggie is someone who doesn't have any ties from any of this to any of this. I probably like really can't say because I think that it's complicated and people probably have different feelings. It's you all Germanic. Ask. It's what? All, it's all, she's from Germany. Strut. Oh, okay. All of this stuff is from German culture. Okay. Well, I have German blood, but no, I'm not really, I don't have any German culture. So I really can't say anything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just, I just think it's, I think it's interesting and I think that it on the one hand it is a positive representation of witchcraft I think that's related or at least akin to the conversation we were just having about the way in which witchcraft you know has has been treated throughout the centuries in you know kind of Europe and Eastern Europe um but then at the same time you're right like Mrs. Strutt doesn't She's really comfortable with it. She brings it out. It's like a positive depiction of something that I think has been depicted negatively in the past in a way that is different from the rest of the witches, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think I just feel kind of conflicted about it in general. But I think that's partially because you're right and it does kind of come out of nowhere. And I think that if that was built into Mrs. Strutt's character a little bit more in the first book, I wouldn't have given it a second thought, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I just did think it was interesting because I thought it, I thought that it kind of related to my thesis that everyone's a witch, but it did. I, I wonder if it could have been written in a way where it's like less, where it does come out of nowhere a little bit less. And I didn't even think about any supposed, like, I didn't think about anything that could be problematic with that. And I don't think it was necessarily problematic. Um, it just made me think about all of that stuff, which is ultimately a good thing, right? Because it made me look closely at the scene and like analyze what was happening in my own like preconceived notions about that like different kind of witchcraft that was being practiced. That's like that is more culturally tied to like a specific region and place and people. Yeah. Because I think that the difference is that the witchcraft that the rest of the witches practice is tied to a different culture and a different group of people. Um, and one that's familiar to probably lots of readers who Mm -hmm. would be consuming this book, whereas the other one isn't. So like, I think it was a good scene ultimately because it made me think about all of those things and like draw my own conclusions about, about it, you know? Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it is interesting, too, that you bring that up, because I do know that one of the big things happening in the witchcraft community right now is that um, because white people tend to appropriate a lot of different traditions, like, people are trying to go back to their heritage and, and see what sort of folklore exists. So, yeah, that's just, that's interesting. So maybe... I don't know, maybe Amy McKay is German and was, like, looking back on her heritage and being like, this is a tradition that my people used to use. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a perfectly viable option. And I think even if it's not, it seems well-researched enough and, um, like, handled in a positive life enough that, like, even if it's not her personal heritage, like, I don't think it's an issue, you know? Yeah, that's something, I mean, I don't even know. That's still something I kind of struggle with. Like, I feel weird 
sometimes doing Italian magic, like magic from an Italian heritage, because even though I have Italian blood, I don't have any of the Italian culture. And even if I did, it would be like super whitewashed and Americanized. Yeah, that's something I struggle with a lot too, especially since I mentioned it earlier with like my Eastern European heritage. On the one hand, because I knew, you know, my my great grandmother and lots of my family who were like really deeply steeped in that culture. And I feel like parts of it were passed down to me, especially the food. I feel connected to do it to it in that way. But then like at the same time, I think what all probably people who live in the United States struggle with is the fact that like ultimately culturally I'm an American, right? So like my heritage is weird in that sense because I feel connected to certain parts of other cultures that like my ancestors have failed have hailed from, but like it's not mine either ultimately and so it's just it's just one giant question mark of of unanswered things can you still hear me I can yeah and I think that's I think that probably resonates with a lot of people um across like especially people in America but just well yeah yeah especially people in America because we are kind of all melting pot pot like yeah but I know that like yeah not knowing what culture to own is something that resonates with people. Like we're white people, right? And that's, that's something we feel, but I know that resonates with a lot of people that I've talked to who are like mixed race and stuff as well. So it's hard. And probably it it resonates more is what I'm saying because it's more apparent. Yeah. And more part of their daily lives than things that like Maggie and I have to think about every day. Let's see. Oh, (laughs) I wrote down that, Eleanor, uh, in the short lease, Maggie, you called this last time. So Maggie, last time when we talked about our discussion, was talking about how Beatrice's relationship with Eleanor and Adelaide are different because Eleanor kind of is like a mother figure and um, it's less of like an equal friendship. And we really, even at the beginning of this book, start to see that heavily with Beatrice. Beatrice like feeling very oppressed under... Eleanor's like helicopter parentness. Yeah, and I think that it was I had conflicting feelings about it ultimately in this book because on the one hand they are all friends and I think something that rubbed me the wrong way was like Eleanor mandating when and how and all that Beatrice could use or explore her magic. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, Eleanor is her teacher and is kind of the person who is, through both of their agreement, in charge of regulating that thing. Um, and also Eleanor turned out to be right. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I think the thing that bothered me about it was that it felt to me reading like there was a, damn it. That there was a lack of communication about those boundaries between Eleanor and Beatrice, where Beatrice just felt like she was being told no and never told why. And I think that in a friendship setting, like in an equal friendship setting, like the, if you're setting boundaries, you need to kind of talk about why a little bit, especially if those boundaries are restricting the, like, ability of another person to, you know, like, interact with you or with other people Obviously, in this case, it's a little bit different than what, than, like, a real-life comparison you could make, because Beatrice was in, like, bodily danger, so Eleanor was trying to protect her in a way that was very real and very legitimate, but Mm -hmm. 
the short leash thing really I think Beatrice actually even uses that term specifically like she was being kept on a short leash in this novella um but then it turned it makes Beatrice really secretive and she doesn't tell anyone about the stranger or anything so like yeah I mean it's like a common parenthood thing too I think like when kids are little it's a little bit more understandable why you don't explain everything about boundary setting maybe because you think they can't understand it but like Beatrice is 18 here and like there is a censorship thing going on but I also think if we're looking at it from a friendship perspective then Beatrice who is an adult right like she kind of needs to be able to communicate her feelings to Eleanor because Eleanor at the end of the day is coming from a place of love and like trying to protect Beatrice from bodily harm and she doesn't even want to like she wants to go off with her girlfriend in Paris yeah 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 I agree Beatrice needed to probably stand up a little bit more but I think it's also hard because the basis of their relationship is coming from like an agreed point of unequalness because it all starts well first of all something we need to I think address is the fact that technically still Beatrice is Eleanor and Adelaide's employee. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so, like, so, like, yes, they're friends, but, you know, like, that is an aspect to it. She does work for them. Yeah. And also, because she has submitted to this, like, teacher-student relationship, I think it does change the name of the game a little bit. Not to say that she was right in not communicating her feelings, but I do think it dynamic in a way that makes it harder to just be like this person was right and this person was wrong you know yeah no I agree I think that it's definitely hard especially because she is still like a young woman I just like I'm coming at it from I tend to be sometimes not always but like I tend to be very protective of my friends right so like when we go out and party I'm going to watch you like a hawk and I will not back off unless you tell me to um (laughs) and like I could definitely see how that could like ruin somebody's good time but at the same time it's just like my knowledge that the world is awful and I've seen a lot of awful things and so like that's kind of what I would want somebody to do for me if I were to lose control so yeah I I guess that was my thing but Eleanor at the same time also isn't really communicating with Beatrice like I don't think Beatrice or Adelaide know yet that Eleanor is gay and I get it because it's like the 1800s (laughs) so yeah that's not necessarily a I feel like Adelaide probably Adelaide definitely knows some openly gay people right or like kind of as open as you can be at the time she must (laughs) yeah and just even well like even even if we're just keeping it limited to Eleanor and Beatrice's relationship, like, it sounded to me like Beatrice had asked, like, had pushed to try and learn more and stuff, and Eleanor just kind of kept shutting her down with no explanation. I don't know. Uh, This book, one of the things I really enjoy about this book and the first book is that it really is a reminder that friendship is hard, and, like, not in a bad way, but that I think Amy McKay really accurately portrays what it's like to have really close friends who care about you and who protect you and like of course it's in a magical fantastical setting so like the danger here is very very high stakes like to the death sort of situation um but it, it just feels very true 
and I guess as somebody who has lived with all of her female friends before, it also feels very true to what happens when you live with all of your friends, you know, like very, it's a very specific dynamic and she really just captures it here. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Good job, Amy McKay. It, yeah. Um, I also, about Eleanor and her romance, I have written here that she's a secret romantic, and I think it's because on page 47, I don't have the text for it with me, but I've... I'm going! (laughs) I think that she's talking about her lady, her lady love, whose name we can't remember. (laughs) And, like, it's, it's really sweet, and apparently, like, I, I just noticed that, like, Adelaide and Brody, even though we've made fun of Adelaide and Brody and their, like, love and romance before, like, romance tropes, they never get the, like, the level of whimsy and beauty that's prescribed to Eleanor and her romantic interests. Would you like me to read it? Yes, yes, please. So, it starts with Georgina sending Eleanor a letter. Georgina, that's her name. <laughs> Hi, I'm Vanessa, and I'm the host of Fabled, a bi-weekly podcast that explores mysteries, legends, lore, ghosts, and fairy tales. Investigation of these tales of woe often reveal grim details that have been long hidden in dark corners of history. Every story is a mix of both fact and fiction, and so are the episodes. Look for me anywhere you listen to podcasts. And say hello on social media at Fable Collective. So go ahead, settle in. I want to tell you a story. And then maybe I'll tell you the truth. My dearest Eleanor, I am comfortably settled in the City of Light and missing you beyond belief. While I'm eager to begin my studies at the academy, I do wish that you were here. I know six months is not a lifetime, but each day is an eon without you by my side. Won't you please come stay with me a while? I need the aid of your native tongue. I am far more confident with ink, press, paint, and brush than I am with the language of love. Beatrice must be ready by now to sit at the helm of the hermitage. Let her pilot the ship so that you may sail to my arms. Yours, Georgina. Eleanor is tucked away in her room, thinking on her own condition. Kissing an inky smudge in the left corner of the page, she longs for her lover's touch. She misses Georgina's voice, too, and the quick ease of her smile. I would leave if I could. I would fly to your side. Georgina Davis had stolen Eleanor's heart almost as unexpectedly as she'd entered her life. All ink and broken pencils, honesty and forthrightness, this woman who made her living illustrating the highs and lows of New York life for the newspapers was now someone Eleanor didn't wish to live without. Georgina's kindness had seen her through the terrible days when Beatrice was missing. Her love and affection had helped her find her way back to herself. It's just so gorgeous. Like, that is where Amy McKay, I think, shines so much as a writer. Because it's just, it's just beautiful. It is. I do think that there is an implication that they must know, like Beatrice and Adelaide must know that Georgina is Eleanor's girlfriend. Like, when she talks... When, she, when Georgina talks about Beatrice being ready to, like, take the helm so that she can come to her in the oh, city okay. of Okay. Yeah. Um, maybe they have an idea and they just don't talk about it, and maybe that's, like, 
maybe that's what's done back then? I don't know. I don't know. You're right in that it's never directly addressed, but I do think it's fairly implied here. But you're totally right, though, also in the comparison of Adelaide and Brody's relationship to this. I think it's because in the first book, Adelaide and Brody spend a lot more time together, though. So lots of when we were making fun of Brody in the first book was because he was directly saying things like that to Adelaide, right? So I think that part of it is that we've just seen Eleanor and Georgina as a couple have less screen time. So we get Eleanor's thought process about it. Whereas with Adelaide and Brody, it was a lot of like, Brody saying lovely romantic things that were mildly ridiculous. And then Adelaide's internal monologue was just panic. Like, do I deserve (laughs) this? I don't deserve this. I gotta just like, stop. That was all of Adelaide's internal monologue. So I do think it makes sense why it doesn't happen because it, it, it was like just different characters, you know? Yeah, but it's also interesting, too, because I think Adelaide, even though she is closed off to vulnerability, she seems more open as, like, like she seems more extrovertedly open, right? Whereas Eleanor is, like, closed off. And then when we get to see her inner monologues, though, it's, like, this deep romantic, like, that's why it really struck me, because she has, like, this well of emotion that we just really don't get to see. <laughs> Yeah, and like Adelaide, I think I think that's a really fair analysis of the situation because we see a lot of Adelaide's emotion. So, which means that when we're in her inner monologue, we have to see her struggling to just be okay with herself. Whereas Eleanor is a more reserved person in general, but she doesn't have that same level of struggle with just who she is and, and her life and what she deserves that Adelaide does. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. I wrote that Sophie Miles is back. My, my notes are Sophie Miles, holy moly, like she's basically Lilith. And then right after that, I have, um, Maggie, this shit is hot with a fire emoji. Um, Actually, it specifically <laughs> says, I'm Maggie, this shit is hot, but that's just not what she meant. <laughs> it, it's supposed to say, um, I was typing on my phone on a plane. <laughs> uh, do you know that page though? Like the Sophie Miles page? Yeah. Can yeah. we talk about the hotness? Do you know what I'm talking about? I know. <laughs> Don't worry. That was not what I thought, by the way. Really? Oh, well, now the world knows my kinks. (laughs) Do you want to just give them a little bit of, like, context about the Sophie Miles situation, though? Okay, so Malthus, like, plucks Sophie Miles out, and he's like, I can use this lady. She's got magic and stuff, and I'm gonna... She already hates Adelaide. Oh, yeah, she already hates Adelaide. There we go. He essentially, like, dooms her to servitude as a cat, but there is, and she's, um, she's spying on Beatrice as a cat. She, like, she doesn't come inside. Purdue hates her and won't let her inside, and Beatrice is, like, friends with the cat, and then she disappears. Oh, my God. Also, Malthus kills Beatrice's dog, just so you all know. There is a dog death in this book, and it's Cleo, the dog that we've already met, so it's, like, it's really quite sad. Um, but Beatrice is trying to befriend this cute little kitty, and it happens to be Sophie Miles. And there's this scene where we, it's revealed that the cat is Sophie Miles, and she, like, transforms, and she's, like, naked, and she's, like, kind of all about Malthus, and Malthus is like, yeah, you're kind of hot, but also I'm evil and powerful, and I don't care. Yeah, I, yes, that, I mean, that is what happens. I found it. Do you, do you want me to read <laughs> Yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> it's really long, so, like, bear with me. 
Richard Gideon Pashalm sits in his parlor in front of a roaring fire. Every so often, he spits whiskey between his teeth and blades. He likes to make things dance and leap. A soft thud sounds at the window behind him, followed by the loud, steady purr of a cat. He'd left the window open, anticipating her return. He smiles when the feline's purring changes to footfalls at his back, and her breathing assumes the cadence of human form. He smiles, I'm so glad you've come home. A naked, lithe, Sophie Miles comes to him and sits in his lap, clutching Beatrice's hair ribbon between her teeth. Pasham had plucked her from the lunatic asylum on Blackwell's Island after he discovered that she'd been the person responsible for Adelaide Tom's disfigurement. They'd quickly formed a pact. She is to do his bidding, in whatever manner he wishes, and he'll refrain from killing her for the time being. He may have also promised her immortality, but that doesn't really matter much right now. Sophie runs Beatrice's hair ribbon between her teeth, then drapes it around her master's neck. Mr. Pasham, she says, rubbing her cheek against his beard and sinking her nails into his arm. He appreciates the pain. Does this mean you went inside her room? She shakes her head. I don't like the birds. Pasham laughs. Scaredy cat. You're mean, Sophie complains, just like the raven. Pasham grins and runs his tongue along the edge of his teeth. I know I am. Taking the young woman's chin in his hand, he holds it steady and stares into her eyes. He can see Beatrice in her room, sitting at the window, wearing her fox mask. She's going to the ball, he says, please. Sophie rises against him, hungry for affection. Pasham shifts in his seat, shrugs her off. Be gone. As the young woman passes through the firelight, she resumes the form of her imprisonment. With a hiss, she scampers out of the room and down the hall. Well, okay, we talk about breasts once in The Witches of New York, but this is, like, the only other time where we're getting, like, nudity. So you did not think that was hot? I just want to, like, clarify. I'm sorry, not to... (laughs) But, like, what were your thoughts? (laughs) That's, like, the only sex we get in this book. It's not even sex. (laughs) The whole thing was so messed up. He steals this woman who is, like, who actually has mental problems, you know, yeah. out of an asylum, which like we talked about the whole problematic aspect of asylums and how they were used in the 19th century in the first series <laughs> that we did. So I'm not getting into it here, but like the woman needed help. He steals her because she's capable of violence. And then he just like imprisons her and makes her into this toy. That's like weirdly sexual. It's just very Stockholm syndrome-esque. Yeah. But I mean, he is a demon. Well, yeah. He's evil, Maggie. But that's why I think he was hot, because he's a demon and he's evil. Whatever. It's okay. It's all good in fantasy. (laughs) You know, so I went for a job interview yesterday, and I was specifically asked what my involvement on social media was, and I just had bright flashing lights as to uh, this podcast, but that's why I don't reveal any of my information on here. Yeah, I don't care. I am all about destigmatization. Dig destigma. I don't know. Whatever. I'm a writer. Everyone can get over it. <laughs> Let's see. Okay. That's that's all. Oh, she's also like basically Lilith, I think, because even though we know now that Lilith was, I mean, we, we've known for forever. Lilith was a character who was demonized in the Old Testament, maybe, or like maybe just Old Testament folklore. She is a Jewish character, though, 
in that mythology world and she was demonized because she would not uh, submit when having sex with Adam. She was Adam's first wife. And then essentially Adam was like, make me another. And this one was made from his rib and that's how Eve came about. But anyway, she wouldn't submit. She wanted to be on top during sex sometimes. And then because of that, she like was cast out of the garden because she wouldn't submit to her husband and that's wicked and essentially became like the consort of the devil. And that's why I was like, oh, she's basically Lilith because unfortunately a lot of the depictions of Lilith after this time when she's cast out by uh, God and Adam is that like she is the weaker link to the devil essentially she's like the devil's mistress and she's just reduced to that so I thought that was an interesting archetype to play with here I never would have thought that in a million years but (laughs) Jade and that's great Uh, I can no I can see your argument that's just never where my mind would have went oh really okay I don't know I just well yeah it's a demon it's a demon mistress you have a lot more interest in biblical. Yes, I do. But I think that's because I also maybe have more relig- interest in religion and spirituality. The orphan girl comes back and is like Diana's charge. I don't know what that's about. We don't really know either. <laughs> no, she's there. She's just there. And like Eleanor doesn't acknowledge that she knows her. <laughs> she doesn't know her but not. No, it's Eleanor. She meets she meets Eleanor, the little orphan girl. Little Adelaide. Eleanor recognizes her but doesn't talk about it externally. What? No, what are you talking about? In your notes it literally says Adelaide recognizes her. So like what are what are you talking about? No, I meant little Adelaide. Okay, no, no, no. Okay. So the woman in order to go to this ball, you have to have this mask, right? There's this like huge magical thing. Everyone should read it. We're probably not going to get into it, but you got to have like masks and Eleanor refuses to go meet the Duchess, which is probably the goddess Diana. Um, and instead she is just like in her little home because she doesn't want to go to the ball. And so the goddess slash Duchess comes to her and she has in, she, she brings with her, her charge, which is the little orphan girl that we met in the witches of New York. Okay, I found the scene. Yeah, who we called Little Adelaide. And Eleanor recognizes the little orphan girl, but doesn't externally say anything about it. And I just thought that was weird. I mean, I think it, I think it just, I'm like reading the scene right now. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that it makes sense. Because the thing is, is that for a second at the beginning, she's, mildly concerned about why the girl is there she like doesn't understand their relationship so I think she doesn't I think she doesn't say anything just because she's just as confused about it oh like she's just confused about it so because it says um page 64 the baroness is a stranger to Eleanor but the child is quite familiar to her she's the waif that has led her and Adelaide to the church where Beatrice had been held prisoner she hadn't seen the girl since why on earth are they still together? Or why on earth are they together? Still, no matter how the pair cross paths, she's glad to see the child looking so well and cared for. So uh, I think it's like a mixture of just being generally confused as to what's happening 
but also she mentions later not wanting to bring up like the bad memories and the nightmares that the kid must have from that by like acknowledging her so I think that it's just like confusion confusion plus not wanting to drag up bad memories for the kid okay okay that makes sense um I really have to pee sorry so that's why I'm making all of these faces are you there yeah I'm here okay good sorry you were frozen um okay you're frozen too (laughs) is there anything else you really want to talk about um, no, I don't think so, because I think that the thing that really, we, we talk about, we talked about all the things that really struck me, all of the important scenes. I think we're good. I think we're good. Everyone should read it. It's like, a, we don't want to spoil everything for you. It's 84 pages. It's great. If you're going to read it with your family, do that. Maybe read it with your friends, read it with your coven. That could be fun. Yeah, don't read it to kids. There's sexy times. Oh yeah, there's um, like slight sexy times. Um, yeah, no, it was really good. It was really fun. And it left me wanting more, which I think that books like this that are kind of novellas in the middle of series, like that's exactly what they're intended to do, right? I got just enough breadcrumbs that it made me really want to know, like, just keep breaking this world open, um, which is exactly what I want. So yeah, that was us reading Half Spent Spent with the Night by Amy McKay. Yeah. Do we have any homework from this book? Oh, I want to make the goddamn bread. You need to send me a picture of the recipe. Don't send me the book. Just send me the recipe. Like, as soon as we're done with this, I want you to send me the recipe. I'm going to go pee. You're going to send me the recipe. It'll be great. Sounds good. I I think that's also my homework, to be honest, is to make one of the recipes from the book. Um, What are you reading? We all know the answer. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm (laughs) reading Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I promise I'm almost done. Um, I get less reading time because my commute is wonky now. Uh, Yeah. Fabulous. (laughs) Yes. What are you reading, Maggie? I am reading The Crazed by Hodgin. Hodgin? Mm-hmm. Cool. What's it about? Um... It is about a professor who has a stroke and his student slash future son-in-law ends up taking care of him, all based around what actually happened in communist China. Oh, that'd be great. Can I borrow that when you're done? Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. What else? Oh, yes. Please rate and review us. And if you do... Uh, send us a picture either on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or our email and we will send you stickers. Let us know where to send them to and we'll send you stickers with our logo on them. So do that, please. Thank you. Next week we'll be back talking about the last chapters of Little Woman right before the movie comes out. So feel free to check that out. Uh, and then we'll be taking a break for the new year. So happy holidays, everybody. No matter what you celebrate, Hermie and I are obviously celebrating Christmas this year, but uh, talk to you soon. Yay. All right. Bye. Bye. You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.